This is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. When I was 11, I was introduced to punk. Like so many people, my introduction to punk came through Green Day's 1994 album, Dookie. That was then followed by Unknown Road by Pennywise, followed by Punk and Drublick by No Effects, and on and on. I played in punk rock bands here and there throughout my life, and I carry those experiences, ideas, and music with me to this day. Splintering off of punk is a way that I've largely discovered many ideas and books and art since I was a kid. In college at the University of Missouri, I consistently would peruse the nonfiction, philosophy, and travel books at the university bookstore. And I would daydream about being smart, being informed about the world, and being somewhere other than where I was at that time. And that led me to the book, Hardcore Zen by Brad Warner in 2004. So I walked out of the bookstore with Hardcore Zen, and it was a bridge from punk rock into the spiritual world, specifically Zen Buddhism. And so almost 14 years later, I am so pleased to welcome Brad Warner on the Classical Ideas podcast. In this episode, Brad and I discuss Zen, Zazen, Soto, teaching, Dharma lineage, Dharma transmission, the Zen master Eihei Dogen, and his profound influence on Zen, and Brad, and his work, and we also talk about American Zen. So my guest today is Brad Warner. Brad Warner is most recently the author of It Came From Beyond Zen, and numerous other titles, including... Don't Be a Jerk, Sit Down and Shut Up, Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate, There is No God and He is Always With You, Sex, Sin, and Zen, Hardcore Zen, and Hardcore Zen Strikes Again. He is a Soto Zen priest, a punk rock bassist, a filmmaker, a Japanese monster movie marketer, and a popular blogger who lives in Los Angeles. And you can find him at his Zendo, the Angel City Zen Center. And you can find him online at www.hardcorezen.info. Without further ado, I bring you Brad Warner. Hey, Brad. This is Greg. How are you? I'm fine. Excellent. You've been having an interesting morning? Oh, yeah. It's been real interesting, yeah. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. 
Okay, well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the Classical Ideas podcast. It means a whole lot to me. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So um, I've spent a few dozen hours with you uh, in my headphones lately, reading up oh, on no. reading up on a lot of your work, and okay. um, I love your audiobook recordings, and I love the fact that you have theme songs and like ambient backing tracks, traditional music. Can you talk about what it's like to set up that uh, that audiobook process? Uh, it's it's totally uh, yeah it's totally improvised. I I just do them on my my uh, laptop here. I, I have I have uh, what's it called GarageBand, like everybody else who has a Mac, I suppose. And I I just do it here at home. Um, putting the music in is just I, I just kind of figured I'd mix it up a little bit and make it a little less boring the the people at audible.com require that you have an intro and what is the last the closing credits i think they call it they have sure. they 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 require you to have these two audio files at the front and back of every audiobook and i don't know what the hell to do with mm-hmm. that but if you try to submit an audiobook without them they reject it which just happened to me so so i just uh, came up with the idea of uh, the previous book of doing a theme song because i don't know what <laughs> i don't know what to do uh, with with that uh, you know, hello, welcome to my book. Here it goes. I don't know what you're supposed to do with it. So, so yeah, I just put in, I just put in the music and stuff to to make it a little bit. I had one, the first one, the cat. My cat walked across the keyboard as I was recording, <laughs> and I just thought it was funny, so I left it in. Uh, That's great. Yeah, I love the music as well too. I mean, whenever you're reading the uh, the Dogen parts, it really, um, it really lends it an air of you know gravity to the situation it's really cool i just liked it a whole lot oh that little ambient bed of music under the dogen bits yeah absolutely yeah i i uh, did that for don't be a jerk i did not do it for the next book um it came from beyond zen uh i just i tried a different thing but the the in the printed book it the font changes so so that this is something i discussed with my editor so that when reading it one would realize they're reading the reader would realize that it's it's dogan's words and not mine so we signal that with a different font but you can't do that in an audiobook so that's why i came up with the idea of putting music and my friend john graves put the music uh, behind it, but he wasn't available for the second book, so I just did a different thing. I have a bell ringing, and before the Dogen part starts, and a bell ringing after, and I put a, a tiny bit of reverb on my voice during the Dogen bits. So hopefully, you can hear a little difference. Yeah, nice. I mean, that to me makes those products uh, standalone on themselves, and makes it really worth getting both. Like I read, "Don't be a jerk." at the physical printed book so that I could annotate and write questions and everything. But then I mm-hmm. also listened to you in my headphones the whole time. So I was getting that fluent Japanese. I was getting that ambient music and it was really just a wonderful effect to the whole reading experience. It's probably not that fluent uh, for the Japanese. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't try learning Japanese from me. Gotcha. People used to, people used to talk about my accent when I was over there. I, I, I think I, I started learning Japanese in earnest when I was about 28. So you know, trying to yeah, trying to have unaccented foreign language when you start that late, I think is 
well, it could probably be done, but I couldn't do it. Sure. So um, for the listeners out there, can you give a, a brief introduction um, about you and maybe some of your work? Uh, sure. Uh, my name is Brad. Uh, I uh, Let's see. I started getting interested in Zen Buddhism uh, around age 18 or 19. I don't really remember the year, but I took a class at Kent State University very early in my career there called Zen Buddhism, which I signed up for on a whim. I had no idea what Zen Buddhism was, but I was interested in kind of weird philosophical stuff. And I think I'd already taken a couple classes, you know, in similar uh, areas. And and I wasn't, I, I don't I don't even know what I was majoring in at the time because I changed a few times, but I I um so so I I encountered this teacher named Tim McCarthy and the way he presented Zen Buddhism made perfect sense to me in a, in a way that no other philosophical system had ever made sense to me and I just started pursuing it I started doing the practice the Zazen practice uh, every day uh, and probably. Pretty much from then until now, I've done zazen almost every day of my life. There were a couple of periods early on in the practice where I dropped it, uh, but I always went back. Then I ended up moving to Japan, uh, not to study Zen. I got a job uh, as an English teacher originally, and then I got a job working for Tsuburaya Productions, who make uh, great Japanese monster films like they they don't own Godzilla but the 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 touchstone I have is Godzilla imagine Godzilla or Power Rangers or they don't make either of those but they make stuff in that genre and uh, I, I uh, work there and through that ended up living in Tokyo because I was not living in Tokyo at, at first I was living in another city met this teacher named Gudo Nishijima there who I studied with for a long time and he wanted to ordain me. He wanted me to ordain and become a teacher in his lineage, which I thought was a stupid idea. But I did it anyway, and then I wrote a book about it, then I wrote another book about it, and then I wrote a bunch of other books about it. Fantastic. <laughs> There's a short, short version, which was probably already too long. Well, sure. And, <laughs> and you know, like anybody who reads any of your work, they're going to get so much of your biography in there because you write so deeply about all those experiences you just mentioned. So I'm going to point all the readers to all of your books where you discuss those things intensively. So um, what about punk? What's up with you and music? Well, I got interested in punk rock when when I was a teenager, again, b- before the Zen thing happened, because I grew up in a time and a place where music was just uh, awful, and I was, uh, I was already into the idea of playing guitar and making music, but everything I heard on the radio was just... just horrible. I, nothing, there was nothing on that I could be interested in. And I, I thought sort of rock and roll had happened and finished. And here I was, 15 years old, a guitar player, and it was gone. The thing that I liked was gone. And I I found out it wasn't gone uh, when I saw Devo on SNL, I think, Saturday Night Live. And realized, oh, those guys are from just down the street from me in Akron. I was living in a little town called Wadsworth, Ohio, which is like a satellite town, a suburb of Akron. And and, and found out uh, through the grapevine and whatever that there were active punk rock bands in Akron. 
uh, went and saw some of them and then joined one. And what I liked about punk rock was that it was honest. Uh, the, the, the thing I hated about the music at the time, which would have been like disco and this kind of what they called arena rock and all that garbage was it was it was insincere and and just seemed uh, designed to be product it didn't it didn't seem to say anything at all and and what i liked about punk rock is it it was honest and it was trying to probe into you know what what's going on here which is the same thing i liked about zen i i think that that they're they're kind of a similar path maybe yeah. I mean, I get that. Um, I grew up in punk rock as well. And I mean, I'm a 34 year old sitting here in a Descendants t-shirt right, mm-hmm. right at this exact second. So I think that that's one of the things that really drew me to your work uh, when I found your book Hardcore Zen in 2004 at the University of Missouri bookstore because it was hardcore music that I was listening to while also bringing in the practice of Zen, which I found really compelling and I'd imagine resonates a lot with many listeners out there, many readers of yours already. Yeah, yeah. Well, you were an early, early buyer because that—that's when the book came out. But the the funny thing to me about that is, I wrote the book that became Hardcore Zen. Hardcore Zen was a title that the I like the title, but it, the Wisdom Publications came up with that. I didn't come up with that. And I, in the entire, uh, probably about twenty years or so that I'd been studying Zen up until I wrote that book. I had not even once encountered anybody who was interested in both punk rock and Buddhism at the same time. Not not even one single person. So I assumed that I was writing to nobody. Right. Uh, I, that that I that I think is something that makes the book kind of what it is. And. and and also, any there's blah blah blah. There's there's it also changed things because my uh, editor at the time knew that there were other uh, books in the pipeline like that. He he knew that there was a book called what's it called Dharma Punks in the pipeline. And I I really think to this day that the only reason Hardcore Zen got picked up is because Wisdom Publications didn't get the rights to to dharma punks and they wanted their own dharma punks book because apparently and i had no idea about this there was like a buzz in the industry that dharma punks was going to be the next big thing and actually hardcore zen outsold dharma punks originally so oh that's awesome man (laughs) at least at least initially I, i think by now probably dharma punks has sold more copies but when they were both brand new um hardcore zen was selling a few more Nice. Well, uh, I know of at least 10 people here in the town that I live in, Columbia, Missouri, that have read Hardcore Zen, and they're just the people that I personally know. So your book has got some traction out here as well in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's it's real interesting because it's it uh, it became popular, which which. I swear to God, I did not expect uh, what I thought when I was writing the book was that I was writing a book that I would make Xerox copies of, like maybe a hundred Xerox copies at a Kinko's or something, yeah, and <clears throat> and put them out as a zine in uh, Tower Records, which you know, uh, rest in peace, Tower sure. Records. But at the time, Tower Records was active, and they had a policy of stocking these kind of uh, zines, these these uh, low circulation magazines that people would make. And uh, I, I just thought I would make it. I would 
you know, make 10 volumes of it and put it out as a series and, that, and, and see if anybody bought the 100 copies that I made. But, but I knew the process because I'd been trying to be an author for some time. So I knew the process by which one submits a book to a publisher. So I submitted it to, I think, five publishers thinking, okay, well, this is a waste of stamps, but might as well do it anyway. And, and, that's, and then it got picked up. So it surprised me. So your books, uh, you got many books, and I'm going to properly introduce you before this uh, conversation and the introduction, but um, your books have really brought Zen to a larger audience in the United States, from what I can tell, especially for people like me who found Zen through you. So let's dive into Zen a little bit. Can you talk about, um, and this might be a somewhat contradictory question, but what is the purpose or goal of uh, Soto Zen and Zazen in your view? Well, there there is none, and that's the and that's the part that really messes people up. I think a lot of people encounter that teaching within the this lineage that I work in, and they immediately just drop it because they can't make any sense of it. There is there is no goal, so you're not you're not trying to do anything. You're not trying to find mindfulness or find bliss or peace or inner balance or anything that being said anybody nobody's going to do this practice this sitting still for half an hour at a time every day if you if you don't have something in mind that you want to change but the 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 thing you have to do if you want to do this process is put that aside and just do the activity uh, and and forget about what you think it's going to do for you. Uh, that's the only way it it can work its magic. So it's a bit of an irony that that the only way this practice works is when you stop trying to make it work. So I had a Rinzai episode um, several episodes back. So can you just talk about what you think is the distinction between Soto and Rinzai and Zen? Well, I've never officially practiced in a Rinzai lineage. I've kind of gone and sat with Rinzai groups here and there a handful of times in my life. So I can't really speak to it from their point of view. From my outsider's perspective, the, the main difference seems to be there is a goal in Rinzai Zen. So the, and the goal is Satori or enlightenment. So you do your practice in order to make this thing called enlightenment happen. Uh, now, probably a Rinzai teacher would say it's not, it's not like that. And, and I'd have to let them speak. But that's, that's what I see as the main difference. So I know that you founded, you have your own Sangha, Angel City Zen Center, right? Mm-hmm. So um, since you've been teaching Zen, um, what kind of individual problems do you see Zen and Zazen help, helping people with in their day-to-day lives? It's hard to say. You know, for, for myself, it, it made things more stable it made it made life easier to to deal with because i could look at a thing and go okay here's that thing that's happening and here's what i got to do about it and realize that my anger or upset or whatever whatever emotional response i was having was kind of Irrelevant. I mean, you can understand that intellectually, but to understand it viscerally, I think, requires a kind of practice because you can you can step aside uh, from it and and uh, learn to 
accept it. Uh, and acceptance doesn't mean complacency. As I told you before we started this, my I, I had to take a ride share to get home this morning, and I, I left my phone in the car, which is, as anybody who has a cell phone knows, is, is, is a disaster because sure. your whole life is wrapped around that stupid piece of plastic, you know. And and you can't do anything without it. So like I've got a whole day set up in front of me, a, a, apart from this interview that I cannot complete uh, until I get the damn phone back. And 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 by the way, the lift uh, the lift when you go on their their thingy mabob to find out what to do if you've lost your cell phone refers you to go do something in the app, <laughs> which, is, which is like I don't know why they can't understand. You've lost your phone, so you don't have access to the application, so you can't so you can't do this thing that they tell you to do unless you have your phone to do it with. So mm-hmm. anyway, but uh, but looking at that, I I have to say, well, here's the situation. And and I've got to do I've got to take steps to remedy the situation. I don't just complacently say, "Well, I accept the fact that I've lost my cell phone." <laughs> you know, right. I'm doing I'm doing my utmost to try to locate it and 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 get it back. So that that's the the Zen approach to a problem is is you see the problem and you do the thing that needs to be done. And I, and I think this is the, the thing that a lot of people find. I don't, I don't actually, you know, I have this kind of, I had this argument with a, a guy who has since decided he doesn't want to have anything to do with Buddhism, but uh, he, he used to run this, uh, this very popular Buddhist website. But he, he was uh, arguing that Zen is, part of the helping professions. And I said, I don't think it's part of the helping professions at all. You, you know, you, I, I do the practice for myself and then I invite others to, to join. And if they ask me for help, I'll do my best to help them. But I'm not, I'm not there as a kind of therapist or, or guide, really. I'm just kind of there as, as a fellow traveler along this same path. And I, I suppose I have a bit of something, a bit of mojo attached to me because I was ordained and because I wrote these books. But it doesn't mean that my Zen is expert Zen, which I will now confer to you amateurs to do. I am, I am, the, the thing about Zen is you are always an amateur. Sure. And you know, what's so interesting about that to me is that so I'm a religious studies teacher. I teach a high school class about religion. And throughout the course of my year, I will go and go to religious services at synagogues, at churches, at Hindu temples, and at uh, sanghas. And whenever mm-hmm. I've been in Zen situations, I've been practicing alongside the the person who is in charge, so to speak. But it's never been like a lesson. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it shouldn't be. And I, I think that's the best way. And I think most Zen places do approach it the way I do, which, which is funny because I, I, sometimes people on the outside will, will comment that I have this unorthodox approach. And I, I, I'm, I just sort of, I don't, I don't LOL at them, but I'm sort of laughing in, internally because I'm, I, I feel like I'm the most orthodox guy in the world when it comes to how to, how to practice this. And, and yeah, and that is the tradition. You, you just kind of let everybody get on with their thing. And the, the person who leads the group is kind of a facilitator. Uh, but that, you know, that, and so they have a, they have a specific role, but that role isn't exactly 
like being a teacher. You know, sometimes I use that word teacher by default because there's no other word to use, but I don't like it because I don't feel like I'm teaching much of anything. So you mentioned that since you were ordained, you have this, like, there's supposedly these expectations that come along with that. So um, I'm kind of curious about Dharma Transmission. I read Shoes Outside the Door by Michael Downing, and I loved that book. It was really kind of an incredible read. I was gripped. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, I've read it it twice, actually. Yeah, it's so good. So what, um, can you describe Dharma Transmission just a little bit for the listener? Well, you know, there's the the foo-foo version, which I'll, I guess I can give first, is uh, that supposedly, and nobody knows if this is a historical fact, but supposedly 2,500 years ago when Buddha was alive but getting old, he noticed a certain guy named Maha Kashapa, who was one of his students, who seemed to get it uh, in a way that, that nobody else really did. And at some point, he started co-teaching with Maha Kashapa. And this would be the point at which Maha Kashapa received the transmission of the Dharma, which meant that he was as, as with it or enlightened or whatever word you want to use as Buddha himself. And so, so then Buddha died, Maha Kashapa kept the tradition going on for a while and then did the same thing to somebody else. And this goes on for 2,500 years up till the present. Uh, somewhere, uh, who, who knows where, maybe after a couple hundred years of this, there were teachers who started giving transmission to more than one student, uh, which is why it's not just a single lineage. So it's not as if, because I received Dharma transmission doesn't mean I'm the only one, you know, uh, the only, you know, true successor to Buddha or anything like that. So that's the foo-foo reason. So it's, so it's supposedly this, this, uh, this ceremony that confers upon you the, the official, I don't know, uh, something or other that you are as enlightened as Buddha was 2,500 years ago. In in the, the less frou-frou version is that uh, that by now this Dharma transmission thing has gone through you know what 25 centuries of modifications and and being you know tossed around through different cultures and stuff. And what 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 it means now is basically that you're teacher recognizes that you are ready to teach on your own without that without the other teacher worrying about you know what you might say or do and and so it's a kind of a it signifies a a great deal of trust Uh, so nishijima roshi my teacher must have trusted me enough not to screw the whole thing up uh, that he gave me this official seal and made me officially uh, a part of his lineage. So what was Nishijima Roshi's um, process for transmitting? Who, uh, with him, it was very sort of done how he wanted it. <laughs> so, so there was no, there was no curriculum. It's not as if I went to seminary and, and finished a whole bunch of classes and, or, or demonstrated in any official way. He just took me aside one day after a talk he gave and said that he felt that 
I should receive Dharma transmission and was I interested in it? And and my first response was, uh, I'll have to get back to you on that because mm, yeah. Because I thought I thought that sounded because I was kind of stuck in the crazy frou frou version of Dharma transmission at that point, or at least I. To me, that's what it had to be if it was going to be right. It had to be, the you know, it had to be real. I didn't want it to accept Dharma transmission and then be, you know, an idiot. So, so I I uh, went. I, I was living in Japan at the time, and I had a. I used to go once a year and go see parents and friends and things. So that year, I made a special point to go see my first Zen teacher, who was Tim McCarthy, who'd kind of put me on the path of this thing, and I was still friends with him. Uh, he's much closer in age to me, and he's also from Ohio. He's ten years older than me, and and so the cultural things weren't as weird. And and I just I sat with him, and I said, I told him the story how this guy wanted to give me Dharma transmission, and and he said, let's see, I don't want to work blue on your show. But he said, there's a whole bunch of there's a whole lot of a holes out there with Dharma transmission, and you would be better than those guys, is what Tim said to me. <laughs> And and except he didn't say a holes. Sure. And I I said and and I I don't remember what I said actually, but I just thought okay, well if you put it that way, then it's something I can manage. You know, if all I have to do is be better than the a holes out there who also have Dharma transmission, then then I can do it. If you if you say this confers upon you the official seal that you are as enlightened as the Buddha, then no, I'm going to say no, I'm not going to do that <laughs> because I can't do that. So I'm curious if you have a uh, lineage certificate. Yeah, yeah, it's in it's in a it's in a drawer under my bed, I think. I haven't looked at it in years. It it was Nishima when he gave it to me, he'd done this thing that they do traditionally and he, it's folded in this very complicated way. And I'm sort of and and this was year, a long time ago, you know. This was in the late 90s, I think when when I did this thing. Um and uh, I, I haven't unfolded it since then because I'm because I know if I unfold it, I'll never be able to fold it back the way it was. So it's just in a little pouch folded up. Are there like um so like if you picture uh, Zen teachers um, in the world that can ordain people, are there like a Oxford or Ivy League school versions of um, Zen teachers versus like some kind of like online for profit junior college scam sort of thing? Is there are there like people that are more reputable to be ordained by? I suppose, you know, it, it, it does have to do, I mean, the one thing about my transmission that's kind of interesting is that Nishijima Roshi, my teacher, received his Dharma transmission from uh, Rempo Niwa, and Rempo Niwa at the time was the head of an organization called Soto Shu, which was the, which is kind of the Vatican of, of Zen. It's, it's, you know, I've never been able, I've tried, but I've never been able to trace the history, and this may be deliberate, but I believe that the Soto Shu, which existed for a long time during the Meiji Restoration when the Japanese were trying to kind of model everything in their society on Western things to, to, to figure out how to compete with the West, which they were very successful at, I, I believe that the Soto Shu looked at the Vatican and said, okay, we got to be more like that. 
And so they reorganized themselves uh, around the time of the Meiji Restoration into a giant sort of corporate organization, much like the Vatican. So, so while my teacher has transmission from the head of that organization, you know, the, the pope of that organization, if you want to stretch the analogy way too far, uh, he, Nishijima himself, did not like Soto Shu at all. He, he felt that they were a terrible organization who, who, who uh, didn't, he, he called them a guild of funeral directors. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he was not impressed by that organization. And, and so I think as, as maybe a form of rebellion, ever, after he received his Dharma transmission, he started, he reverted to doing Dharma transmissions in this very, very old style, which is the style that Dogen did in the 1200s, which has none of the sort of official bells and whistles that the Soto Shu now requires. So, so I guess it's a roundabout way of saying that if you want your Dharma transmission to be super officialized, the best thing you could probably do is go to Japan and get it done through this Soto Shu, this organization. And the the Rinzai uh, uh, Zen people, uh, they don't have exactly the same thing, but they have a few kind of uh, more prominent temples. And if you received your transmission from one of those prominent temples, it might be regarded as better. I don't know if there's any online. I, I mean, no, I do. I, there's a lot of phony Dharma transmissions out there. Uh, several years ago, I got kind of swept up in one. I'd met this guy. I don't remember his name, and I'd probably, I'm probably too polite to say it even if I did remember it, but he, he was a fake uh, Dharma teacher. But he was, very, he was very good at seeming to be official. And, and he'd written a book, and his book seemed pretty good. So, and he asked me if I would send it to my publishers. And so I said, okay, I'll send it to him, but I can't guarantee anything. So they also liked his book, but then they started to find holes in his story, because I hadn't really examined it that closely. So I said, well, just ask him for his, to, to uh, take a picture of his transmission certificate and send it to you, because... Um, that is the one time I unfolded mine, actually. So that this whole story I told you about folding it was a, a, a lie because I'd forgotten <laughs> I did this. Um, but I did unfold it once to take a picture of it to to uh, send to my publishers because Wisdom Publications were a Buddhist publishing organization. So they wanted to be sure that if I said I was Dharma transmitted, I was. So... So I said, since I had done that, then you can, you know, I, I think he should be willing to do that. And and they sent me what he sent them. And it, it was just the most phony looking. They said, does this look real to you? And I'm like, does it look real to you? Like, it was so, it was so fake looking that you wouldn't even have to be an expert to, to, to know. You wouldn't even have to ever seen one, a real one before, to know that this was fake. So the I mean, moral really bad. So, yeah, so the moral for the listener is to beware of these scam Dharma transmission teachers. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, there aren't a lot of them out sure. there. So so the the chances are if you run into because there's no there's no real reason. That that was the thing I never understood about this guy. Like there's no money in it. I mean, there's, there's nothing, you know, it's it's I, I don't know why you would fake this particular thing, but but people do. And I, I ran into a guy in the Netherlands too, who also, who, who also had a fake transmission. So, you know, there I, I've run into two in my life. So, so they they are out there. 
but uh, it's not like it's a widespread thing. So you've got a series of books out right now, and I, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, Don't Be a Jerk and It Came From Beyond Zen, because these are two books that I think are doing something really cool. Um, so you are among a very, very small amount of people that are currently doing work using the work of A. Hey Dogen, a, um, a monk who founded the Soto Order from about 800 years ago. Mm-hmm. How does that feel to be among such a small company? Yeah, well, it's interesting. I don't know if I'm really among company because among Dogen scholars, I, I don't know. I'm like Rodney Dangerfield of Dogen scholars. I don't get no respect. <laughs> you know, nobody ever, nobody ever cites me. Or, or there was there was one guy, Kazuaki Tanahashi, who's a sort of um, respected Dogen scholar who sometimes mentions me in his work. But he's the only one, and 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 I and maybe tellingly, he also came through it like me as as being kind of an amateur at it, be meaning somebody who doesn't have a specific degree or anything in you know Japanese classical religious studies or whatever, uh, who who just decided to research Dogen on, on his own. But yeah, so I'm I'm doing something nobody else is doing with Dogen. Uh, which is I'm trying to present him in a way that contemporary Western people can understand. Uh, and and I, I think other people have made that attempt, but they kind of do it in a way, how can I say this? Because I respect a lot of these people, but they they're kind of stuck with they are interpreting a great classic of Japanese religious literature, and so they have to honor it, you know. And 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 so they'll they'll do translations which are just really really difficult to to follow because because you have to you not only have to follow the philosophical ideas which are already difficult, but in order to follow the the the, the I don't know the 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 live argument. You have to know classical Japanese things that were going on in Japan eight hundred years ago. How, I'm trying to put it in a sure, like in a way that's under. You have yeah. to yeah yeah the cultural stuff. You have to you have to be deeply embedded or or whatever the word is in the culture of that period in order to understand even Dogen's references. And I just decided, well, why? Because we could find contemporary reference contemporary references that are analogous to these things because really things don't change all that much, you know. So so I just started, you know, putting references to McDonald's and and stuff in in my versions and and, and notating when I have done so, but I think any reader can figure out, you know, that there were no McDonald's is around in Dogen's time. But that but that but I'll put a note in my version saying what here's what Dogen actually said. So you can see why I made the connection to a McDonald's or or to skateboarding or whatever I've made the connection to. So why is uh, Don't Be a Jerk and It Came From Beyond Zen? Why did you need two volumes? 
Oh, because Dogen just wrote his butt off, you know. He 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 died when he was fifty-four years old, and didn't start writing until he was almost thirty. Uh, but during that period, he wrote just a tremendous amount, and I've barely scratched the surface with two volumes of this stuff. And and uh, frankly, I'm not I'm not immediately planning a third volume, but I could probably go on to five or six if I really wanted to pursue it. I, I think I think though my work is done here, as the superheroes say. Uh, I think if you if you read the two volumes I've worked on, then you're probably ready to dive into the to the real stuff. You know, to the to the translations that are more standard translations will probably not be quite as difficult for you if you if you read my stuff first. So there's a lot of humor that comes out in your writing. I've noticed that uh, I always find myself like picturing like mo howard from the three stooges whenever i read yeah. dogan and i'm curious if you find dogan to be funny it, you know this is a question i've actually put more thought into than probably is, is worth it but uh, yes i i i believe dogan makes jokes all the time in his writings uh, no other scholar who or I'm not, I'm not one of the scholars, I guess, but no scholar I've seen who translates Dogen seems to seems to do that. But he he there there are so many things in his work that are puns, and this is you know he does plays on words all the time, and he and he kind of tells these absurd stories, and I I don't. Yeah, I, I think he's joking. I think he's. I think he's actually trying to to lighten things up with a little bit of of humor here and there in in his works. I mean, he's not he's not a comedian, but uh, but that gets lost in translation because the the jokes themselves depend. I mean, they're puns in a foreign language, so you you can't translate a pun. It's just impossible, uh, and so. All I can do is try to put a different joke in there where his joke is. It's super cool. I, I just loved it. I laughed so many times during Don't Be a Jerk. It was unbelievable. So um, the the title of that book, Don't Be a Jerk, I love the, I love it because it's just such a clear lesson. But um, so you say the rules of the Zendo are Don't Be a Jerk in the Zendo. So what's yeah. the so what's the story of the jerkiest person you've ever come across in a meditation hall? Well. Yeah, uh, one 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 of the times, and I probably ruined Nishijima's life by doing this, but uh, <laughs> I he he used to do these said sittings that were for, for people in the company that he worked for, right? And and they were a requirement by the president of the the company required people to go on one of these per year, so. So I went along on one of those one time, and I got into the zendo, and everybody was was just talking and chatting away in the zendo, which which to me the zendo was a sacred space. Like once you enter the zendo, you you do not talk. You know, there's a certain there's certain formal things you're allowed to to give voice to in the zendo, and of course, if there's an, an emergency, you can talk. But but other than that, you don't talk. You know, it's 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 like a library but much more strict than that. Like you never talk in the Zendo. And so all these people were just chatting and gabbing away and sharing gossip. And I said in Japanese, 
because I was turned towards the wall doing my zazen already. I said, this is a Zen dojo, please be quiet. <laughs> and they all shut up uh, because this foreign person had, had called them out on this thing. But then later on, I thought, oh, God, what if they were like, I, I didn't know who these people were. So for all I know, there could have been executives and people in there, you know, and I might have just silenced his boss or something. Nishijima himself had not arrived by that point. He was on his way. But uh, yeah, and, and I've seen all kinds of things. I, I We had a, a group meeting. This wasn't exactly a Zendo, but we had a little group sitting and a guy was was texting during Zazen. And, and luckily after he finished his texts, he got up and left because I was going to I was going to kick him out of the place. <laughs> um, but I just thought that was you know, where do you think you are? <laughs> you know. So, uh, how do you see Zen growing in North America? I mean, since you founded your sangha in 2004 until now, how do you see it changing? I know you travel around the the continent a lot as well. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 getting it's getting out there and it's getting around. If you're talking specifically about Zen, though. The thing about Zen is a lot of people love the word Zen and they like to talk about Zen and there's a Zen medical marijuana dispensary about a, two miles from where I live and you know there's all this Zen hair salon and you know, whatever. So people love the word Zen but it's, as far as the Zen thing becoming popular I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure it ever will. Uh, it's 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 uh, it's it's growing though. In Buddhism, the interest in Buddhism is growing. I mean, there's this huge, there's this book that's making a lot of waves these days called Why Buddhism is True. Oh yeah, Robert Wright. Yeah, and people seem to love that. I haven't read it. I've seen it in, in uh, airport bookstores. So you know when things are in airport bookstores, they, they must be <laughs> popular. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot going on. I, I go to Europe every year and I keep getting invited back. I don't know why. Uh, and they they uh, they seem to like what I do in Germany and Finland and England and a few other places. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions about Zen in the United States? Well, that it's that it's a, a synonym for chilling out. I think would be the the biggest one because I, I don't mind if people call their marijuana dispensary Zen, you know, and I, it doesn't it doesn't bother me or offend me. But I also like to point out that this actually is a serious uh, practice that that isn't isn't just about you know look I'm all I'm chilled out in Zen right now. Well, you know when you're laying on the beach, eh, that's that's not the same as <laughs> as as uh, Zen. Uh, so so that's the misconception I suppose, or or that it's gonna it's, it's gonna fix what ails you. I mean it it will, but. Uh, you have to work at it. What do you think uh, Zen does particularly well compared to like other religions or philosophies? Well, for for me, uh, the the attraction is the the realness of it is is this fact that, I, that as we started off talking about, it's a goalless practice. So there's no goal to the practice, and what you realize in doing this practice with no goal is that everything absolutely everything in your life has no goal you know you don't you don't go to high school 
to graduate. You don't go to college to get a degree. You know, you you think that way. We 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 picture things that way. We don't even go to work to get a paycheck. We that's just that's just a way of thinking. You're you're actually doing something and in the moment that you do that thing, whatever goal you may have in mind isn't there. Uh, and 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 so you're just doing the thing, and if you can get deeply into that, you can apply that to everything in your life. And the the other thing I like about Zen is that there isn't uh, there isn't a dogma attached to it, and I really do resist that. I think there are, you know, a small number of Zen teachers who try to introduce dogmatic aspects, saying you must believe this or whatever. I think that's a huge mistake. I think you allow the the people you're practicing with to believe whatever they want to believe. Uh, because I have faith that reality trumps, I'm sorry to use a bad word there, uh, all belief. <laughs> uh, so, so, so reality, actual reality conquers everything. And if you can, if you can, harmonize with reality then your beliefs will also harmonize with reality you you'll you'll find yourself i put a thing on twitter trying to mess with people and saying i don't believe my own beliefs which is which is a statement of fact you know i have beliefs like everybody else but i don't actually believe them well and that really ties nicely into your introduction from it came beyond zen where you talk about how human beings always want to be certain about things yeah. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, I, you know, I haven't, I don't have, like, research data to back this up, but it seems to me that one of the things about being a human is you, we have these brains, and they are, they are our only survival weapon that really, uh, can beat any other animal, you know, on the, on the African savanna, when we were just another one of the wild animals running around and getting eaten and trying to, you know, trying to live, uh, the only advantage we had were these big brains, you know, any, we were just, we were just a snack for anything on the savanna, except that we could kind of out clever them. And, and I think our whole society, our whole, our whole civilization has been based from the very beginning on that, on that aspect of what we are as animals, as we're clever. And so, and so because of that, knowing something becomes an urgent, you know, you have to know something. Maybe this is what up, upset me so much about losing my phone this morning because I, uh, is the need to know where that phone is. You know, that's just one example. Um, but but I think I think as human beings we have a strong tendency to lock on to that and get and get really really uh, concerned about anything that we don't know, you know whether it's the meaning of life or 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 the location of our phone or anything. So so that makes it very hard to kind of let go of knowing, which is what Zen practice requires. <laughs> awesome. Well, Brad, I've got two more real short questions for you. So I asked okay. several of my friends what they wanted to know from you, and they were just curious on uh, if you could recommend any books um, for them to check out. I've got several people interested to hear what you're thinking about this. Well, you know, if I didn't like my own books, I wouldn't write them. So, uh, so in, in, you know, 
I, I hate to be immodest, but I would recommend those books because because I think they're good. But as far as people other than me for for Zen, uh, the I don't really follow that much of what's going on. There's an author, Shohaku Okumura, who's a he he's lived in the United States for a few decades, but he's Japanese and he writes books that are really good uh, that that. Um, that I think are worth checking out as far as a contemporary living person. Um, Shunyu Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind is great. And there's a few other books. Shunyu Suzuki never actually sat down and typed out a book himself. But, but there are a few books that collect talks that he gave. And those, are those I think, are worth getting. Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind being the best of that group. And I'm curious what your favorite of your own books is. You know, it's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, I any any author always likes their most recent book best. So I, I feel like um, it came from Beyond Zen is probably the the one that the one that's kind of gets it right more than any other. Uh, Hardcore Zen is the most popular book. Uh, and and I think it's good for what it is. I I, I sort of I, I didn't like the way it was edited, and so for years I didn't look at the book at all. And then I did the audio book of it. It was the first time I'd read it in in I don't know how many years. And in reading it back to do the audio book, I thought, oh, it's not bad. <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was terrible for for years. I'd just been laboring in the impression that it was an awful book. Uh, but but I think it's actually good. Um, and then I wrote this one called Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate, which I think is is I, I I wanted to write a book that nobody else was willing to write, which is to try to kind of expose the 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 seamier side of what it is to be a professional spiritual teacher and and try to do it not as an accusatory book that goes hey that guy did all these sleazy things and you know enumerate them like there's plenty of books that do that awesome and i think i actually just bought that book off of angel city zen center's website so i'm excited to read that one myself oh good i hope somebody sends it to you <laughs> yeah no kidding yeah. No, um, it's it's uh, it, it, we are we have, we have gotten it figured out. So I should I should be careful and not discourage people. You you can now order from Angel City Zen Center's online website and it and it works. But for a little while we were having a hard time with it and there were a few people that got their books late. <laughs> and I feel terrible about that. But now we've got it figured out. So uh, what's next for you? What projects are you working on? Well, I, I'm sort of trying to get a, a new book started. I, I have this weird process with getting a book started, which is that the initial couple of months involved no writing at all. I'm just kind of walking around thinking about it and discarding ideas as they come. But I believe that a couple of weeks ago, I finally hit upon what the next book should be. And now I've just got to kind of figure out how to write that. You know, so it's kind of like you, you for a book, I don't know how other people work, but I, I kind of have and uh, get a vision of what it should say, but that vision doesn't really come in words. Then I have to kind of figure out words to convey that idea. So that's kind of, that's what I'm working on now. Uh, I don't, right now I've kind of closed the book on, on touring I mean, I'll do it next year, but I'm not even thinking about it right now. Uh, so I'm going to stay home for a while and work on this book. 
and people but the angel city zen center is is an ongoing thing and people are always welcome we we do there's something going on at angel city center zen center every day of the week except sundays and sometimes we do things on sundays too <laughs> so there you go well, I'm trying to plan a trip out to uh, California, and I would be interested in checking out uh, Angel City Zen Center and also Against the Stream. Both of those sanghas are, I follow kind of both of what both those organizations have going on. Yeah. So uh, maybe sometime I can meet you in person. That would be great. Sure, sure. S- so where can people find you online if they want to know more? Well, the best way is hardcorezen.info, which is my blog. And I, from there, I have links to everything. If you if you look up Angel City Zen Center on Google, you can also find that. But hardcorezen.info is the is the one I I kind of work from, and it's pretty easy to find. I'm also uh, apparently people have told me I'm lucky that if you Google my name, the the actual me is the first one who comes up. <laughs> apparently, that's hard to accomplish in this in this day and age. Well, Brad, this has been a really awesome conversation, and I'm so appreciative of your time and your work. So thank you so much for coming on the Classical Ideas podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And good luck in the search for your phone. Yeah, I hope to. All right. I hope I get Take care, sir. Okay. The Classical Ideas Podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soden. Music on the podcast today was written by Patrick Ritter and performed by Greg Soden and Patrick Ritter. Additional music is written and composed by Derek Strybick. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. Thanks for listening.